This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. Rise for the reading of God's Word. Matthew 5, we'll start in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota nor a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. You have a seat. Quick little introduction. Um, Sola Church has been a blessing to me and Cole, particularly over the last couple of months, um, whether it's just uh, sharing some of the struggles with them and being encouraged by them. Uh, they're offering to help preach for us, which is a, a super huge blessing to me. So I'm really thankful for that. Uh, Mark Gomez is our guest speaker this morning. He's one of the elders at Sola Church. It's just a church down in Littleton, uh, part of the SOMA network. And then also, uh, if you're familiar with the SOMA network, it's part of Jeff Vanderstel and some of the language where we get our idea behind family, servant, and missionary in our gospel community. So the Sola Church is part of the SOMA network down in Littleton. Um, probably not the first one to struggle to say that, right? Okay. And then Rob is another, he's not here right now. Rob is another elder. He may actually come and preach for us as well. We been uh, talking to him a little bit, another elder at Sola Church that's been a blessing to us. So we're really thankful for Rob and for Mark. Um, Again, they've just been a blessing to me and Cole particularly. We have part of our sermon series, we've decided to sort of intermittently address uh, this idea of just justice, race, and the gospel. Um, we had a, uh, You can see that on our website. We have a handful of sermons, or we started to look at what justice is from the Old Testament. Uh, we had our guest speaker and a Q&A Lee show up uh, about a month ago, and Mark is sort of our, our next iteration of our speakers in this series. Mark is going to speak to us about how kind of the Lord's Prayer got his ball rolling in his mind, thinking about how he could be involved in the foster care system uh, and love uh, some of those who are not all, always loved by our society. So uh, I'm thankful for Mark, and uh, if you could just give him a little round of applause as we bring him up here. All right. Thanks, Aaron. Thank you, mate. I'm going to go ahead and lower this a little bit. I'm not tall either. All right. Yeah, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn them to Matthew. Um, We're going to kind of be all over Matthew for a little bit. Um, Before I jump in, let me just uh, reiterate what Aaron said. Your elders have been uh, blessing us. I'm going to take this off while I talk. 
uh, your elders have been a blessing to us. Um, we love other churches that are doing the whole missional community thing. Um, we love other churches that are emphasizing um, family, community, mission, and all that. And we want to um, work together in the Denver area uh, to see that type of church just uh, expand its influence. Um, we want to partner together and just you know work towards the common good in the Denver area. So it's really great to be with you guys. Um, we're going to talk today uh, in, in Matthew uh, about righteousness and religion. Righteousness and religion, and especially as we go through this, we're going to get to the, the Lord's Prayer um, in a minute. We got to set it up, and um, we're going to talk a little bit about exceeding the righteousness of the Pharisees, um, a phrase that has always kind of terrified me. All right. Uh, we're preaching through Matthew right now. I'm, I'm just kind of stealing some of the stuff I've already done. I hope that doesn't come across as lazy, um, but it, it just saves me some time. I want to walk you through a few things in Matthew just so we can set up um, the Sermon on the Mount and then the Lord's Prayer. All right, so the first thing, uh, Matthew is kind of broken down into four major sections. You can probably break it down further, and um, depending on the commentary you read, it's going to break it down differently, right? You start in chapters one through four with Jesus' biography. You got his birth story. You got uh, a few events around his life. I'm going to jump into a few of those in a minute, but it's like setting up who Jesus is at this point in time. Five through seven, you have the Sermon on the Mount. Um, it's Jesus's ethical teaching. He's presenting his um, ethical vision, um, starting out the new covenant. Uh, eight and nine, you get into Jesus's ministry. And then 10 plus is his kingdom where he's empowering his disciples to prepare to go out and, and inaugurate that kingdom, launch the kingdom. He dies and he rises again in order to in actually inaugurate that kingdom. And we get to the very end of Matthew. What does he tell them? All authority has been given to me on, in heaven and on earth. Go therefore, right? Go, take this authority and go with it. Okay, so, um, so Matthew's kind of broken up this way, but I want to focus on the first half of this. Um, chapters one through four, uh, Jesus continues and brings to culmination the story of Israel. If you read any of the gospels, and, and we heard uh, John 1 read this morning, what does John 1 do? It takes us all the way back to the creation story, and it connects the story of Jesus to the book of Genesis, right? Um, if you read the book of Matthew, you're going to see that very clearly, uh, Jesus continues and brings to culmination the story of Israel. And then five through seven, he presents his ethical message. So how does he continue and bring to culmination? How do we see that in Matthew? Well, right at the very start of Matthew, it starts with this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Right off the bat, Matthew is making no bones about it. This is about the son of David, the son of Abraham, were meant to enter into this story as the continuation of the story of Israel, all right? The son of David, the son of Abraham, and then he launches into this long um, genealogy. Uh, and, and for most of us, like you read through the Bible, you get to the genealogies and like that's the boring part, right? We kind of skip over those, especially in the Old Testament. Um, but here, Matthew is trying to do something very specific with it. He is showing how Jesus is entering into this story and launching essentially the next phase of it. Because over and over again, um, he's going to point back to prophecy, right? Right at his birth, um, what happens? The wise men come and they ask, okay, where is he that's born king of the Jews? And the answer is Bethlehem in order to fulfill the prophecy, 
He's fulfilling the prophecy of the Old Testament. Um, he, goes, he, he goes as a refugee into Egypt to escape the, the uh, Herod trying to kill all the babies, right? And what is the prophecy? Out of Egypt, I will call my son. Matthew is drawing our attention to all these Old Testament prophecies. He says, John the Baptist is the new Elijah. You guys are uh, going through Isaiah right now. You're gonna get to that point where the, um, the messenger's gonna come and the mountains will be brought low and the valleys raised up and the path will be prepared for this Messiah, right? You're gonna get to that in Isaiah. Here, Jesus is saying, that guy, that's John the Baptist. He's the new Elijah. Um, Jesus goes for 40 days in the wilderness. Can it be more clear that he is representing Israel here, spending 40 days in the wilderness? And when he comes out, we're gonna actually go further back in Israel's story. When he comes out of the wilderness, he's gonna be tempted by Satan, just like Adam was in the garden, only this time he, as the new Adam, is going to defeat the temptation. He's gonna come out of it unscathed. He is the new Adam launching a new kingdom. He calls 12 disciples to him. As you read through Matthew, he's calling 12 disciples. He's reconstituting Israel here. Okay, this is the continuation of the story of Israel. And then what does he do? He goes to a mountain and sits on a mountain and delivers his teaching. He is now the new Moses, all right? Matthew, like it, it is not subtle in Matthew what he's doing with this story. Jesus is the new Moses. He goes up to the mountain and he's delivering this teaching as the new Moses. He's delivering his ethical teaching. And he starts out the sermon with the Beatitudes. Um, the Beatitudes essentially set up the upside down kingdom. And if you look there in, in Matthew 5, you'll see the Beatitudes. You're probably familiar with them. Um, Stanley Hauervoss says this in his, his excellent commentary in Matthew. The sermon, therefore, is not a list of requirements, but rather a description of the life of a people gathered by and around Jesus. And I want to set that up as we enter into the Sermon on the Mount and the Lord's Prayer. It's so easy for us to come to this and look at it as a list of rules and regulations that we're supposed to live by. That is not what he's doing. He's saying, this is what my new covenant people are going to look like. And he starts it out with the Beatitudes, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit. If you read it in Luke, it's just blessed are the poor. You can't, you can't, spiritual, you can't over-spiritualize this. He's actually talking about the economically and spiritually impoverished, all right? Poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek, those who are hungry and thirsty, not just for righteousness, but also who hunger and thirst. Blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, not the warmongers. That's important because everybody else has tried to bring about this kingdom in Jesus' time through war. Right? You have the, the Maccabee brothers who, who uh, bring about a rebellion against the Roman Empire and they are going to try to bring about the kingdom by launching a rebellion, a military rebellion. And here Jesus is saying, my kingdom is gonna come through the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are you when others revile you. There's this upside down kingdom that he's introducing. The people that are normally on the margins, the people that never really make it into power, that is, those are the people that are gonna constitute my kingdom. And the community of my kingdom is going to be marked by these kinds of people, okay? And then he says this, you're the salt of the earth. This is what Aaron read for us this morning. Um, if salt is lost, says, how shall its saltiness be restored? Um, he goes on, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill can't be hidden. Um, 
and I want to make sure I'm not getting ahead of myself. He gets to the end here. Verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. Okay, let your light shine so they will see your good works and glorify your father in heaven. What are those works going to look like? Jesus, you're saying we're going to have these good works. They're going to glorify our father in heaven. What does that look like? And then he says something really surprising. At least it's surprising to me. What will these good works look like? And he goes right into, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. We as Christians in the new covenant, we have a really weird relationship with the law. Um, I don't know if you've ever noticed that, right? Um, We love the stories in the Old Testament, but when it comes to all the rules and regulations and, and, you know, all the fees, all of that, it feels so distant. It feels like we're not a part of that. And here Jesus is saying, like we're expecting him to talk about the new covenant. He's like, listen, I'm not getting rid of the old one. I'm not abolishing the law or the prophets. I didn't come to do that. And then he says something really, really shocking at the end there. Verse 20, at the end of this section, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That verse always kind of terrified me. I grew up in Baptist fundamentalism. I don't know if anybody has similar backgrounds, right? I was independent fundamental Baptist church, right? Um, Here in the Denver area. Um, Went to a Baptist Bible college and it was independent fundamental Baptist. Um, And whenever I read this verse, in my mind, it meant, man, the the Pharisees were amazing at like memorizing scripture. They knew the law. They followed all the rules. Like, I, I, I need to be praying more. I, I need to memorize scripture more. Um, I, need, I need to go to more. So like we've got Sunday morning, Sunday night, su- Wednesday night. Um, I got to go to all the services. How can I get my righteousness to exceed that of the Pharisees? It feels like this is a really high bar because the Pharisees were known for adhering to the rules. They memorized huge tracts of scripture, right? You, you had to memorize the Pentateuch. You had to follow all these laws. You had the Holocaust laws, which were like laws around um, what scripture's giving. And then you had the, the Gezerah laws, which are like rules that we set up in order to avoid breaking these laws, right? So it's, um, it's not just, you know, don't work on the Sabbath. It's like, we need to define exactly what work means so that I'm not even close to breaking it, right? Um, one of my laws is going to be that I'm not even gonna pick up my hammer on the Sabbath just in case I absentmindedly see a nail and go to hammer it. I'm going to avoid picking up this hammer. You cannot carry your bedroll outside of your house uh, because that would constitute work and working on the Sabbath is bad. And so if you see somebody carrying their bedroll, man, they they are breaking the Sabbath. They had all of these rules and they were really good at following them. They had to define everything, right? What's the greatest law, Jesus? It's to love God and love your neighbor. Okay, that's very wise. But let me ask you this. Who is my neighbor? We need a definition so that I make sure that I love that person, right? And it feels like when when Jesus is saying this, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, it feels like a really high bar. And then you read through the rest of the gospels and you find out actually that bar is pretty low. Because here's what happens. Jesus goes through... And if you, if you follow Matthew, um, he is going to tear these Pharisees and scribes apart. And you know what he's going to tear them apart about? He's going to say, you, you missed 
the point of the law. You miss the heart of the law and the prophets. Matthew 23, um, uh, really righteousness. When we talk about righteousness, um, I just wanna make sure we understand what righteousness is because a lot of times we think of righteousness as following all the rules. Um, righteousness is covenant behavior. How does your behavior conform to the covenant that you are a member of, all right? Let's see how the Pharisees' behavior conformed to the covenant that they were a member of. Matthew 23, what does he say? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. In other words, the Pharisees were there in their herb gardens, okay? Like this is, this is getting a little, um, you know, a little crazy. They go to their herb gardens, they get their mint and, and dill and cumin and they go to their little scales and they're like, I gotta get 10% because the law says 10% and I gotta send 10% of my mint and dill and cumin over to the priests in the temple um, because that's what the law requires of me. And Jesus is like, you, you have completely missed the weightier matters justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you should have done, you should focus on these. It's fine, you wanna tithe your mint and dill and cumin? Great, fine, do that, no problem. But don't miss justice and mercy and faithfulness. He gets even more, like the, the condemnations get even harsher in, uh, in Luke 20. And there's this, um, there's this passage that growing up, I always heard um, in terms of tithing and giving, the, the story of the widow's might, right? You heard this story? Um, it was always preached in terms of you're not giving enough to the church, right? Um, that is not what it's about. Remember in, uh, in, the, in the original manuscripts, there's no chapter and verse breakdowns, right? If we look at the widow's might in context of the passage before and the passage after, it gets absolutely interesting because here's what he says. Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes. They love greetings in the marketplace. They love the best seats in the synagogues. They love the best places of feast. They devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. And he looked up, new chapter, we're not used to um, reading this all together. This is starting a new chapter. He's condemning the scribes and Pharisees for devouring the widow's houses. And he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts in the treasury. And he saw also a certain poor widow putting in two mites. So he said, truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. For all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God, but she out of her poverty put in all the livelihood that she had. And then what does he say? Then as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful storms. So there's, there's people sitting here. They hear him commend this widow and they're like, yeah, but look at how beautiful the temple is. As if like, we still need those rich people, don't we, Jesus? Because look at this beautiful temple that's adorned with gold. And what does he tell them? These things which you see, this temple here, the days will come in which not one stone will be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. You like your beautiful temple? I'm gonna tear the whole thing down and replace it. You were supposed to be taking care of these widows and instead the widows are taking care of you. You love your riches, guess what? I'm gonna tear the whole thing down. 
Jesus here is condemning the scribes and Pharisees for not caring for the the poor and the vulnerable and the oppressed among them. When it comes to covenant behavior, you know this from Isaiah, you learned this last week, right? What is God concerned about? He is concerned about oppression. And when it comes to a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees, what does he want us to be concerned with? Justice and mercy, right? These are the weightier matters of the law. The last one, he, uh, there's this story in John um, where he, uh, there's a lame man who's sitting by the pool of Siloam, right? And there's this, I don't want to get into exactly what it was, a myth, legend, whatever it was, that an angel would come down, stir the waters, and the first person that gets in is healed, all right? Um, There's a man who is lame, who's sitting by the pool. Jesus comes up to him and says, do you want to be healed? And the guy's like, I got nobody to help me. There's no way I can be the first one into the water. It's the Sabbath. Jesus tells him, take up your bed and walk. All right, so what does the guy do? He takes up his bed and he walks and Jesus performs a miracle, healing the man on the Sabbath. And guess what? He's walking around on the Sabbath, carrying his bedroll. Nuh-uh, you're not supposed to do that. Pharisees and scribes see him, immediately confront him like, who told you to do this? Who told you it was okay to carry your bedroll on the Sabbath? And the guy's like, listen, yesterday I couldn't walk. Today, I can walk. And the guy who healed me, he told me to carry my bedroll, so I'm carrying my bedroll. And the scribes and the Pharisees go to Jesus and he has this whole conversation where he says, listen, my father is working and I am working, right? Everything the father does, he shows me and I do it. The father works on the Sabbath, so I work on the Sabbath. And they decide we need to kill this guy because he's making himself equal with God. And he has this whole diatribe against the scribes and Pharisees. And he finishes the diatribe with this amazing burn. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you don't believe his writings, how will you believe my words? In other words, you think you're so good at following the law, you don't even believe Moses. Man, can you imagine him like condemning the scribes and Pharisees that they don't even know Moses. At one point he tells them, you call Abraham your father. You don't even know Abraham. In fact, before Abraham was, I am. And they all picked up stones to stone him, right? When it comes to a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, it's not this massive high bar that we need to get really good at rule following. It's actually a low bar that says, are you concerned with the vulnerable and oppressed in your community? That's what you're supposed to be concerned with. So if that's what we're supposed to be concerned with, if that's what Jesus is leading us towards, if we're supposed to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the, of the scribes and Pharisees, the question comes, and Aaron asked this question last week. I, I stole this question from him. I'm not gonna um, claim it as original. How can the beauty of the gospel lead to the end of oppression and produce genuine transformation? How can the beauty of the gospel lead to the end of oppression and produce genuine transformation. Where, if, if that's what we're supposed to be concerned with, how do we do it? How do we go about it? And that's where we get to the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer starts like this. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And it's very easy to trivialize that a little bit. I want to make sure you understand a few things about calling God our Father. Uh, number one, 
There is an aspect of adoption. Um, when we call God our father, there is this aspect that he is our good. We sang good read father this morning. I have a, um, a family in our church uh, and uh, the woman, she grew up in foster care. Um, she aged out of foster care. She never knew um, what a healthy family looked like. Whenever we have requests for songs, guaranteed immediately her hand will go up and you know what she asks for? Good, good father, every time. And we can't like anymore, we cannot get through that song without crying, okay? When we call God our father, there's this element of adoption that I am now part of a family and I have a good, good father who loves me and is pleased with me, right? Don't miss that. We, we, we emphasize that. You guys sang it this morning. I love that song. Like we need, to, um, we need to see that for the beauty that it is, but we can't stop there, all right? Um, I don't just love my son. Um, I also tell him to do stuff, all right? It's one thing, like I tell my son, I love him all the time. Every once in a while I tell him, you gotta take out the trash, bud, okay? There's not just the aspect of adoption where we are now loved by a good, good father. In the, in the New Testament times, in the ancient Near East, having a father, there was also an element of apprenticeship. And when Jesus calls God his father, what does he say? I'm doing whatever the father is doing. He is showing me everything he's doing and I do that as well. In other words, as a son, I am apprenticed to the father and I am working alongside of him. Once we understand that we are loved by a good, good father, the next step is to say, okay, what does my father want me to participate with him in? How am I apprenticed to my father in the work that he is doing, right? What does that look like? And then finally, there's an element of authority. When I walk into my house and people are bickering and fighting, sometimes dad has to step in and say, all right, let's settle this, okay? I have the authority in my house um, among my children to, you know, like to settle things. When Jesus gets to the end of Matthew, what do we say? What, 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 what does he say to his disciples? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And so I'm sending you out with that authority. My kingdom is inaugurated. I'm sending you out to do the work um, and I have the authority to do it, Right? When I speak to my kids, I have that authority. When we talk about God being our father, there is the um, element of he is our authority. He is sending us out and we are now his vice regents going out on behalf of that authority. There's adoption, there's apprenticeship, there's authority. What does he want us to be doing then? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. He wants us to be about his kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. And a lot of times people tell me, this is just, we're supposed to wait for his kingdom to come. And the reality is when we get to give us this day, our daily bread, I would guarantee none of you just sit around and wait for that, right? None of you pray, give us this day, our daily bread. And then you just sit around and wait for God to deliver your food and provisions, do you? What do you do? You go out and you get a job and you, you, you provide for your family and there's, there's strict, Paul has condemnations for somebody that doesn't provide for his family. You're not meant to pray this and then just sit around and wait for it. When we pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven, that means we are, we are calling ourselves to be participants in it. 
what does religion look like for us then? Well, James says it the most clearly. Religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to keep oneself unstained from the world. What is, so religion has a pretty bad rap among evangelicals, right? Um, we're supposed to be, it's not a religion, it's a relationship, right? Um, and James comes along and he's like, whacks us in the back of the head and says, no, there is covenant behavior that you are meant to be engaged in. It's not just about you having quiet time alone with God. That's great. This is Jesus saying, hey, all of that stuff that you're doing, that's great, keep doing it. But also don't forget the weightier matters here. Don't forget the things that I'm really concerned with. I love your services and, and your singing and I love you know, your missional communities or your gospel communities, whatever you call them. Those are great. But how are the widows doing? How are the orphans doing? How are the foster kids doing? How are the homeless doing in your community? How are all of those people doing? You guys were just in Isaiah. I, this is nothing new to the New Testament. This is what they were missing from the Old Testament. Learn to do good. What is that good? What is that good that we're supposed to learn to do? Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Micah tells us this. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? What is the requirement on you? What does righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees look like? Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. Again, back to Hauervoss. The sermon, therefore, is not a list of requirements. We make religion about a list of requirements. And instead, it's a description of the life of a people gathered by and around Jesus. And who should that affect the most? The, the poor, right? Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Uh, blessed are those who are persecuted, right? What should we be characterized by? And let me say this, I, I wanna just share briefly how this has worked out in our lives. So I preached this uh, in 2014, um, November of 2014, we were, we were doing a series on the Sermon on the Mount and it was my turn to preach and I preached the Lord's Prayer. Um, and at that time, just sitting in the passage, listening to Jesus, um, it prompted us to say, how, does, like, how do we then participate in it? And as we looked at it, we decided foster care was something that God was calling us to. I never would have imagined what God would do in our lives and in our church um, through that seemingly simple decision. Um, we started doing foster care. Um, we took, uh, after a couple of years, um, we'd agreed. So, so we have four biological kids. Um, and when we started doing foster care, our youngest was six. Um, and we'd agreed, we're done with diapers. We're done with middle of the night feedings. Like we're just gonna take kids, like elementary age is gonna kind of be our sweet spot, right? Um, we get a phone call about uh, a newborn baby. Um, and my wife, thankfully she got the phone call. I wasn't the one that got the phone call. And she comes to me and she's like, hey, they, they have a newborn. Um, they need a placement for it. And I reminded her, we already talked about this, right? Um, you know, no 
diapers, no middle of the night feedings. Like, do you really want to do this? And, and she said, I, I don't know. I just have a feeling about this. I really think we need to say yes. And so we said yes. And uh, this 10-day-old baby um, came to us. Um, and one, the, as soon as I held her, um, I, was, I was smitten. Just, just, I was against it at first, and then I held her, and I was smitten. Um, we took care of her uh, for several months. Um, the birth mom wasn't doing well uh, and just had a lot of uh, problems with addiction. And they started talking about adoption. Okay, if you get into foster care, let me just warn you, once you flip that switch, you can't unflip it, all right? Um, around the time they were talking about adoption, the birth mom started to get it together, got through rehab, got a job, got stable housing. And a lot of it was due to the work of my wife loving her really well, okay? Um, if you go into foster care, it's not about taking care of kids. About, it's about taking care of a family in crisis. And that's something Jesus taught us as a result of uh, being in foster care. Um, at 11 months, we'd had her 11 months, um, she was reunified with her birth mom, okay? Hardest thing I've ever done. We took them out to brunch. We celebrated with them. Um, and then we went home and we cried for days. Uh, my wife physically couldn't get out of bed um, for a few days. Um, but we, you know, this is what we're in it for, right? Um, about a month later, yeah. Reunification is, is what we're in it. We weren't trying, we already had four kids. We were trying not to adopt. Um, but it was, it was still like heartbreaking. Um, a month later, um, some stability starts to crumble uh, and there's a relapse and we get the phone call, would you be willing to take this baby back for a while? Um, for a while turned into adoption. Um, she's, she's my daughter now. Um, she's four years old. That sounds like, like a really happy ending to the story, but at the time it wasn't a happy ending for this birth mom um, who, who had lost custody of her child. Um, and so through, through like God working through our community, we loved her really well. Um, she had another child that she was able to keep. Um, she has since now joined our church. Um, she sits, uh, like my, my daughter sits between her adopted mom and her first mom, she calls her first mom. Um, and they worship Jesus together um, on Sundays at our church. It is something that we, like it is, when, when, you, when you talk about um, exceeding abundantly all, above all you could ask or think, like we never would have imagined God doing this. This, um, this birth mom has two children now that are hers in her custody. My daughter has a, a half sister and a half brother um, that she knows and loves and sees regularly. She's part of our missional community. And now my foster kid that I have right now, who's 13, um, you know who her favorite person in our church is? It's, it's our, our good friend who aged out of foster care, who lost her child, but was loved really well and now is part of our community, right? When we have other foster parents, like biological parents who've lost their kids to the foster community, you know who is able to speak into their lives in a really, really powerful way? It's It's Amber. We, we, when we got into this, we never imagined what God would do, but it completely transformed our church. Every missional community now has a missional focus on vulnerable communities, whether it's foster care, um, homelessness. Uh, we work with Bridge of Hope, which helps single mothers on the, on the brink of homelessness. Um, like God has just radically, we're working with uh, North Littleton Promise, which is a refugee and immigrant organization. Um, 
just like thinking about what does it mean for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven has completely transformed our church in incredible ways. And when we look at it in the lens of justice, race, and the gospel, um, you know who is generally in that category of vulnerable and poor and oppressed on purpose in our society? Um, it, is, it is the minorities, right? You look at poverty. I, I, I could probably talk for a long time. I get to do training with um, our foster agency. We talk for a long time about the, uh, the um, disproportional representation in foster care. Like I want you to have a vision that Jesus is calling you to the vulnerable and the oppressed and the poor. And this is what the description, this is what it looks like for a people gathered by and around Jesus. We get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount and um, it talks about deliver, deliver us from evil, right? Um, uh, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This sounds a lot like what Jesus prayed in the Garden of the Gethsemane. Pray that you enter not, watch that you enter not into temptation, right? And then he goes and what does he pray? Is there any other way, God, right before the cross, is there any other way? And you know what the answer is to Jesus? The answer is no. When Jesus prays, deliver me from this evil, the answer to him is no. And he goes to the cross and he rises again. He conquers that evil. So that now when we pray the Lord's prayer, we pray, deliver us from evil. We are confident that the answer will be yes. Because the answer to Jesus was no. And so we're, we're gonna go to communion. And communion is a reminder that Jesus' body was broken, his blood was shed. The answer to him when he prayed, deliver us from evil was no, so that it is a yes for us. And through that, we get our adoption. Through that, we get our apprenticeship. And because he died and rose again, he has all authority to lead us into this work that we are called to. The covenant behavior that Jesus is looking for is caring for the vulnerable, the poor, the oppressed among us. Is that what your community is gonna look like? Let's pray and then we'll, we'll go to uh, communion. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much uh, for the time we have in your word. Um, I thank you that uh, Jesus was the perfect representation of this. Um, that when he talked about um, uh, turning the other cheek, he, he turned the other cheek. When he talked about going the extra mile, he carried his cross. Um, when he talked about laying down your life for your friends, he laid his life down on, on our behalf. Um, Jesus was uh, the perfect representation of what he called us to. And we look to him as our example. Um, God, I pray that you would just transform our hearts. What we are being called to is, is not easy. Um, it doesn't always work. Um, God, you know that uh, we have seen some incredible things. We've also seen some heartbreaking things. Um, God, I pray that um, in the midst of the difficulties, um, in the midst of going out and working with the vulnerable, the poor, the oppressed, the widows, the fatherless, the immigrant, the refugee, um, that we would remember um, even, even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. That even when we don't see the results, we know our labor's not in vain. God, give us that confidence to know that you are at work in us, through us, among us. Um, God, I pray that we would just uh, be so full of the beauty of the gospel that it affects the most vulnerable around us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.